it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 260. Today, Andrew and I are going to teach an investing class. Well, just kidding. We're going to talk a little bit about, we got this great question. Actually, I'm stealing a great question from Patrick O'Shaughnessy from Twitter. Full disclosure here. He had this great question on Twitter a few weeks ago, and I thought it was awesome. And so Andrew and I are actually going to take a stab at answering this question. So the question goes like this. You get to teach an investing class by using three long-term single-case use stocks from any era. Berkshire is not allowed. Which three do you pick? So Andrew and I are going to share with you our three picks, and we'll discuss them kind of back and forth. So, Andrew, I'm going to give you first serve so you can talk about the first company that we think would be a great use case to help teach finance. So I'm going to pick one of the greatest investments that we've seen over decades, and that's Coca-Cola specifically Coca-Cola during the late 80s and the 90s. And it's obviously still around today, and I drink Diet Coke. I enjoy my Diet Coke, and I know millions of people around the world do too. I think Coca-Cola is such a great example of what is possible with investing and in the finance world. I mean, when you first got slightly interested in the stock market, Dave, like, what were your impressions of what the stock market was versus what an investment like Coca-Cola actually shows you what the stock market can be. Like, was it like some kind of casino kind of environment for you? That's exactly what I thought it was. And then when I started discovering Buffett and ideas like Coca-Cola, for example, then I realized that, hey, there's a lot more to this than I originally thought. I really thought it was a casino. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of go in with that mindset that this is going to be a really fast-paced environment. And I'm going to have to be really, really smart and make all these really shrewd moves. And then you look like a company like Coca-Cola, which has been around since like the 1890s or something. 
was one of the most popular drinks during the World Wars. The American soldiers loved it. It basically kept them going through that tough time and has continued to just create lots of wealth for people who were able to buy the stock. And you consider when Warren Buffett bought this stock back in 1987, Coca-Cola had already been one of the best businesses ever. And it was already one of the biggest stocks in the stock market. And yet it continued to grow at 20, 25, 30% a year. And so, you know, you don't have to have a fancy calculator to be able to comprehend that you can make serious amounts of wealth with a 25% return every year, year after year after year. And that's what the Coke's done. And, and right now, we're recording this in 2023. They've had 60 years of dividend growth. So I saw somewhere Buffett's making something like $500 million of dividends every year from his investment in Coke. Wow. And I don't even know how much he originally invested in Coke, but if you got that, how much he put in versus how much he gets now every year, that's the power of investing. That's the power of the stock market. And it all comes from finding a great business and a business that knows how to make customers happy. And as an investor, you can grow as that business grows. And that's really kind of my idea of investing in personal finance 101. And it's not a, the thing that I like about it, it's not a complicated business model. It's not something where you need to understand the higher levels of tech or super complicated biopharma stuff to understand what Coke does and how they make money. And I think that's what makes it a really great case study to learn fundamentals of a business. And like you were saying, the returns on equity and just the overall performance of the company has been nothing short of outstanding for a very, very long time. And even when Buffett bought it, it was a household name when he bought it. So it wasn't like it was a brand new IPO and this was right out of, out of the chute, a successful company. It had been around for 70 or 80 years before he bought it. And so I think it's a great example of fundamental research and understanding a business model. And I think that's why I think it'd be a great first case study to learn about finance. Yeah, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to find this elusive hidden treasure that's buried under mountains of sand. It's sometimes the most obvious names can make the most wealth in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's move on to my first pick, and that's going to be Visa. I know, big shock, everybody. But Visa would be the company that I would choose as one of the first companies that I would recommend using for a case study. And the reason why I would choose Visa is because of several reasons. Number one, it was a revolutionary technology when it first came on the scene and has really kind of connected the world through the use of their technology. And it also shows the simplicity of the model because the model has not changed in the last 50, 60 years, and they're still doing what they do. And you can see through the evolution of the company from the founding of the company to DHOC taking over and really kind of revolutionizing how Visa operated and the creation of their payment rails. And I just think it's a fascinating case study of a business and how it can go from kind of one idea to becoming what it became 
and how you can see that business model transition, as well as the profitability, the investment returns that you could earn by finding this great business. So that's why I would choose Visa. I guess, how would you best describe the history of, like, what does the history of Visa tell us about finance or business? I think the thing that I think of, I guess, when I think about Visa is I think about how model business models can evolve and change over time. When the Visa model first began, it began as, in essence, a credit card. Bank of America in the late 50s created the Bank America card, which was intended to be a credit card, which at the time was not really a thing. And so they were attempting to create a way to give people credit to go out and buy things, and then they would pay Bank of America back, and then they would earn interest on the balances as those balances were not paid off. And that's eventually what the credit card industry became, but Visa morphed from that to become more of a payment gateway or a toll road to allow people to conduct business online with different kinds of payments. At the time, the payments industry, it basically involved you going to a store, giving somebody your card, a credit card, because debit cards didn't exist. They would put it on a carbon copy. That carbon copy would be put in the back room of the store. Then they would send those to their accountant who would account everything up and then send it to the bank who would have to reconcile everything. And then you would go and get the money from the customer for the payment. And it was very convoluted and took long, long time. And Visa, when it became Visa, allowed all of that to happen in mere seconds. And so now all that stuff happens very, very quickly. And it just shows that how business models can morph over time And the financials of the company can also change over time as that business model changes because Visa or the Bank America card went from, in essence, being a bank to being really a technology company. And it just changed the nature of the business. And it also was, I think, one of the first companies that I can think of that really showed the immense scale that was possible for businesses because Visa was able to scale globally at a time when that really wasn't a thing. And so because they allowed payments to be able to happen globally, that was a scale that people had not seen before. And so those to me are some of the lessons I guess you could learn from Visa. And so they had, they were born in Bank of America and then IPO'd at a later time. Yep. Yep. Much later. And I believe it was in the eighties is when they IPO'd. I don't hold my feet to the fire on that exactly, but they were part of a banking conglomerate. And then they spun out Visa as its own entity. And I know Bank of America would probably regrets that to this day, but they, <laughs> they spun that and MasterCard kind of went through the same evolution. They were both spun out as individual IPOs at a later date. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. 
and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, so let's move on to Andrew's second pick. So I'm going to reference a company from long ago. Now we're talking about my childhood. company called Circuit City. And so, you know, if you're Gen Z cohort or younger, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But Circuit City was basically like a Best Buy. And at the time, you know, personal electronics were really first bursting onto the scene. So this idea of even like putting computers in your home or having a lot of electronics in your home, electronics was this big growth industry where now we kind of see electronics as this you know, we all live with electronics, but electronics used to be a much newer concept and particularly the type of electronics that Circuit City provided, which included, you know, desktop computers, laptops, anything like that. So what makes Circuit City interesting is it kind of serves as a warning for what can happen in the stock market on the negative side. So we understand that you can make a lot of money from the stock market through businesses that grow We also have to be careful that sometimes businesses get a little bit too greedy and they can bite off more than they can chew and that can wipe out shareholders. So in the case of Circuit City, they grew too fast. And so even though they were a company that had lots and lots of growth, they basically overextended themselves. And when the recession hit, they had way too much inventory and they couldn't get rid of it all. And they had a lot of things that they had to pay for that they couldn't pay for and they had to go bankrupt. So it does show you that while there's a lot of inspiring stories about the stock market, there are also some harsh business realities. And as investors, it will help your results a lot if you can identify that and just be careful of times when things get too excessive. So in the case of Circuit City, they 
built up too many liabilities and didn't have enough of a asset buffer. And so that's, it's kind of rare. It doesn't happen much, but every once in a while you get a business that basically was not wearing pants and the tie came out. So it's something you just, sometimes you just have to be cautious to understand that there is a dark side to investing. Yeah, there definitely is a dark side. So were the financials such that you would have seen some of these things growing or happening as they were playing out in real life? So you could have seen this kind of example of too many liabilities and not assets to offset their, I guess, weakness? Well, that's the scary part about Circuit City is if we were to compare them to a lot of other different companies, they kind of sound like the same story, like, we grew profits, we grew revenues, we opened new stores. Like this wasn't some decaying dinosaur. This was a, a fast growing company. And so it's again just one of those situations where it helps to use basic metrics. Uh, one of them that we probably don't talk about enough, but it's called the quick ratio. And it looks at how liquid a company is. And liquid meaning can a company have a lot of cash on hand in case of a bunch of costs come up. So you can use simple liquidity tests like that and you can avoid companies that don't score well on those. And that's one way to prevent your portfolio from experiencing what Circuit City shareholders experienced, which in the case of bankruptcy means your investment goes to zero. And that's really the only way you can absolutely lose money in the market, right? Is if something goes to zero? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great case study. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. All right, so let's move on to, I guess, my second choice, which would be kind of along, maybe not the bankruptcy yet, but the same kind of idea, and that would be GE. And the reason why I would pick GE is I think GE shows the whole range of gamut of a company going through the entire life cycle prior to going out of business. And you can see the company, you know, founding over 120 years ago or so, if I had to guess. I don't know all the specifics, but it became one of the most recognized brands in the world, one of the largest companies in the world, easily one of the largest companies in the United States. And now it's a bit of an afterthought. And it shows kind of the evolution that you can go through with a company. The business model hasn't, didn't change much, but it also shows ownership and how leadership can impact a business. And towards the, I guess, the high point of the company, they had a CEO who, in essence, gamed the system and created ways to beat earnings every single quarter, every single year so that the stock price would continue to go up. And he would do things like he would take on more debt to generate growth. He would buy a lot of businesses that the company really didn't need. They took on all kinds of different kinds of business entities that weren't really related to their core of what they were really doing. And that distracted from the focus of what they really do which was focusing on electronics. That's General Electric. That's what they did. And when they started getting away from what they did as a core, they kind of lost focus and the company started to struggle. And this particular CEO stepped down. They had another one come in 
And he tried to right the ship by offloading a lot of the assets that they had that weren't core to the business. And they took great losses from those. And the company has continued to lose, I guess, focus as well as relevancy. And you can see it in the sales. You can see it in the balance sheet. You can just kind of see it across the board. And one of my favorite teachers, Professor Oswald Damodorn, likes to talk about company life cycles and how companies start off as young, growing companies. And then they eventually become more mature businesses that are very profitable, you know, throw off tons and tons of cash flow. And then the companies start to decline. And it's, it's all part of the natural evolution of business cycles. And GE, I think, is the perfect example of that whole starting at the bottom, growing to a high point, and then kind of getting over the curve and starting to fall off from them. And, and so that's why I think GE would be the perfect case study of an evolution of a business. And you can see it in the financials. You can see it in the management. And that's, to me, why I would choose GE. So kind of like this focus on the empire building versus doing what's right. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. That's a great way to put it. It's definitely the king has lost his mojo, but he doesn't realize he's lost his mojo. (laughs) So I guess when people say that, when investors say that, like a company that got too aggressive with growth, what exactly does that mean to somebody who's not familiar with how growth works in the market or with businesses? Well, it can mean a variety of different things, and it really depends on the company and business and who's leading the company. Some people, when it can go wrong, when companies continue to try to grow just for growth's sake, as opposed to trying to become better at what they do. If a company gets away from focusing on what it is they do, for example, if McDonald's decides that they all of a sudden want to make pizza and that's not their core competency and they focus all their energy on growing the business by you know, jumping into the pizza wars, for example, then they're going to detract from the business and it could, in the long term, it could really hurt the overall performance of the company by focusing on something that's not, that's outside of your core competency. And I think GE is an example of some, of a company that tried to do that. They tried to get into finance. They tried to get into, you know, furniture. They, I mean, they got into all kinds of crazy things that really had nothing to do with what they do. And I think when companies try to do that, they can take on debt. They can take on more debt than they can handle because they're trying to grow because they want to, some companies try to grow by buying other companies. And that's what GE did is they would take on a whole bunch of debt and go out and buy a whole bunch of companies. And in and of itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing if it's done well and done right. The problem is, is that when you do that wrong, when the CEO is basically trying to satisfy his own ego by having building a bigger empire, he's putting more strain on the business. And if they can't afford those interest payments because they have all this other debt, then that puts the company in a really bad situation financially. And that's something that you see over and over and over again in the stock market. And that's what I think GE would show is, is you're taking on too much debt and you can't afford it. And it's like our budgets at home. We take on too much debt. and We can't afford it. We get in trouble. Same thing happens with the business. And so I think sometimes, depending on how the company wants to grow, that's one of the struggles that I see is when they take on too much debt and then they can't afford it. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. 
all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So how can an investor differentiate between a company that's buying businesses and doing it well or one that's empire building? Oh boy, that's a good question. I think there's several ways. Some of the metrics will tell you. You can see by you know me- metrics like returns on capital, returns on equity, returns on invested capital. If those are all elevated and then they start to suffer, that could indicate that the company is not acquiring well. They're not spending their money well because they're ruining the returns or they're hurting the returns on a capital, which help them grow which help them give back to us as investors. That's one way. They're paying, uh, paying, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, no, just try to translate, like paying too much for the businesses they acquire. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Paying too much for the businesses they acquire, taking on too much debt, and you could see something like that in an interest payment, like an interest coverage. There's a ratio that you can look at and see what the interest coverage is, and if the company has enough cash to cover the interest payments, then that's okay. But when that starts to get closer to even or less, then that's when you run into trouble. And that's a good way to check is looking at, at interest coverage. Those are the two that I can think of. Can you think of any others? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch, but I want to like throw people. Yeah. <laughs> I want to bury people. You can go on our website and we talk about it a lot in a lot of different articles. Yeah, exactly. Search bar at the top. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's move on to something a little more positive, shall we? Would you like to take a stab at your third company? Sure. I'm going to talk about Tesla. Lots of fun. Obviously, a really great company has become really, really popular, built its own cult following. What I find about using Tesla as a case study is it kind of shows you in real time like why the stock market even exists in the first place. And so if you think about why the stock market exists, it would be like if Dave and I had a lemonade stand and we were selling lemonade, but we wanted to grow, right? And Building a new lemonade stand takes, you have to invest in in a lot of different equipment to make a new lemonade stand. And so we could wait day after day or week after week for our little profits from our lemonade to come in until we could finally open the new lemonade stand. Or we could try to find other people who would invest in our little lemonade business. And then when you get investors, you get more cash that you can throw and maybe instead of opening one lemonade stand, you can open three or five or seven. And so that idea of raising capital to grow a business is what Tesla has done. And they've done it so, I guess, in such an educational way because they almost failed. They like You see what happens when a company gets to the brink. And so it's been this wild ride that the company has gone on from basically being subsidized by the government because they are trying to push this green technology. And so they're surviving off government subsidies plus whatever money they can raise. And then as they continue to grow, they still need more and more money because they're expanding so fast. It kind of shows that depending on what industry you're looking at, sometimes capitalism can be very brutal and it can be this very narrow race where companies have to either basically expand or die and for whatever reason car manufacturing seems to be that way so they had a very limited window um, but they were able to raise money and so i think the idea of them and and dilution i think is an important concept for investors to understand 
back to Dave and I's lemonade stand. If we want to open seven lemonade stands and we wanted to get a bunch of money from people to do that, well, maybe we have to give up like 10% of our company or something to get that investment to open the lemonade stands. And that's what businesses do when they're in their growth stages. So that's what an IPO is. And then also as they finance their growth through things like convertible debt, that's another form of dilution and share-based compensation, which we've debated about in the past and has always been fun and an advanced topic. But those things all basically bring on more investors and bring more money to the table. So you're kind of giving away little pieces of the business to grow over the long term. And that's what some of the best businesses that do it right are able to do that well. And Tesla definitely qualifies for that. Yeah, I would agree with that. There are several things that kind of stand out to me. Number one, we were talking about GE and the whole life cycle idea. And I think Tesla in a shorter period shows the impact of the life cycle in the early stages of what can happen with a company when it's successful with everything that it's doing. The other thing that I like about it is you kind of see it being built in real time. So you can, because of the advancements of the internet, now we can see all this happening day by day by day. And of course, with Elon having access to the Twitter machine now, uh, you can see his thoughts, you know, on a daily basis now, whereas before when you would think about management, you didn't really have the same access that you do to him in particular. And, you know, and b- before you think about Jack Welch, who was the CEO running GE all those years ago, the only access investors ever had to him was through earnings calls or the annual report even. You know, before a- earnings calls, it was just the annual report or maybe a news report you may see about them. So you, you really had no access to the, the CEOs. And now with the advent of the Internet, we do. You know, Elon, for sure, is probably one of the more vocal CEOs out there, for good or bad. And the flip side of that is you get a lot more access and you get a lot more ability to think about what these people are thinking as they're making the decisions that they do. And I I think Tesla would be a fantastic use case. Yeah, hopefully I kind of presented their history so people can grasp that lesson. Yeah, I think you did. All right, let's move on to the last question or the last company. So my last company is going to be Amazon. So the reason why I'm choosing Amazon is because I think Amazon would be the perfect example of what a technology, the Internet, can unleash in a business model. Prior to the rise of the Internet and the rise of of Amazon, the way we all conducted business was fairly similar. It was all face-to-face. It was all local. It was regional. And there wasn't much globalization to things. And there also wasn't much ability to interact or buy things from around the world. And with the rise of Amazon and them embracing the internet and becoming the e-commerce machine that it's become, we have this new way of doing business that really wasn't available to investors or to the world prior to the rise of Amazon. You also get to see in real time how the management, Jeff Bezos, really drove the company and the decisions that he would make to impact the business. And you could see that kind of through the financials in that he was focusing more on free cash flow generation and reinvestment than he was on profits. And for a long time, that was really the focus. And you can see that if you had invested, if you had believed in what Jeff Bezos was preaching 
and you had invested early, you would have done really, really well, but it would have been a really, really rough ride. And it would have been really, really hard to stomach the, you know, the dot com bust and everything that happened through that period and just the, the ups and downs that they've had through the years. And I just think Amazon is, is a great example of if you think about a company like Walmart uh, or even GE, the way that those businesses operated prior to Amazon is completely different now. And they've had such a big impact on the world globally as far as how we conduct business. And I just think it's a great case study to show how the a technology like the Internet can change things. And then you have AWS, too. Oh, yeah. The whole cloud thing is just <laughs> that's a whole other beast of its own. That's really become the way we're going to do business going forward. So obviously the Internet played a big part. Was there any other huge contributors to Amazon's success in your mind? You have to start with Jeff Bezos. I think he's the the mastermind behind what has become Amazon. And he really has driven that company forward for good or bad. I think a lot of times we want to assign, you know, good nights and bad nights to, you know, different CEOs. You know, this person is anointed and this person is not anointed. He may not be the most likable guy, but he has driven the business to become what it is. Uh, by his, you know, desire to improve every day. And he may not have had all the best ideas, but he was willing to gamble and willing to take chances and try things, throw things at the wall and see what sticks and what didn't stick. And that's how things like AWS came to be and Amazon Prime and things of that nature, which have really driven the company forward. That's really how, you know, it started as a simple bookseller and it's, you know, become a, you know, I don't think it's worth a trillion anymore, but it's probably in that ballpark. And so it's become one of the largest companies in the world. And a lot of it's because of what Jeff Bezos believed and what he wanted to have done. Yeah, those are great lessons. All right. So I think with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I think this was a great, fun, educational way to kind of think about companies. I encourage you out there to think about this question and think about three different companies that you would study or that you want to study that would help you learn more about finance. And that's a great kind of fun way to start to learn more about finance. And if you need help along the way, Andrew mentioned our our website, investingforbeginners.com. We have over 1,200 articles on there. You're going to find something on there that's going to help you learn more about Amazon as well as Tesla, whether it's with gross margins, whether it's returns on capital or whether it's learning how to avoid bankruptcies. There's all kinds of great stuff there for you. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.